Uh, well, good morning, Outward. How are we? We doing all right? Nobody's okay. That's depressing. It's utterly depressing. I will say you can go ahead and thank me. I brought the sunshine with me from Charleston, South Carolina. It will leave when I leave. So just go ahead and know that now and we'll be okay. Um, my name is Aaron Nabriha. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a church planter in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I've spent some time here before, and so I already recognize some faces. I was actually here one year ago, literally the week before, I drove, uh, I drove a moving truck from Salem, Oregon. It was my parents' moving truck from Salem, Oregon to Charleston, South Carolina. Don't, not a, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. This is your mother's things. And all the stuff shifts while you're driving, and it crashes, and everything's scratched, and the bike's bent, and it's just, and then all of a sudden you're just the worst child on the planet. So, um, but uh, we moved. We started a church a year ago. Um, just a small team. Um, it was uh, my wife and, and my daughter and myself and one other couple, and we and we went to Charleston from Nashville, Tennessee, at the time. So go ahead, throw out all your redneck jokes. They're probably true. I'm just an absolute mutt when it comes to human beings. I grew up in Salem, Oregon. I went to school in Chicago where I learned how to be kind of mean. And then, well, that and Salem too. Salem was a really big part of that. And then I went to Tennessee where like, I, taught, I was taught manners and like where the fort goes, you know, and, and how to say yes, ma'am, and y'all. And then I went, to, I went even deeper into the South, into the dirty South, into Charleston, South Carolina, which is like the pit of the South, um, where everything really, really happens when it comes to redneckish. So, um, so I'm just an absolute mess. So if you hear a little bit of an, an Oregon accent, my friends are like, in, in, in South Carolina, say, well, you sound like you're from the, the West. I'm like, well, that's good, I am. My friends from here say, well, you, where, how long have you been visiting? You sound like you're from the South. I'm like, I'm not, but I'm con- it's confusing. So um, it's good to be here. I was actually a part of Outward the early, um, the early days. Uh, back in 2008, I spent a year with you guys, and, and Matt and Chris were actually a big part of my life, and some of you know those stories, but uh, Chris was actually one of my youth, youth leaders in high school, and so don't use that as ammunition. Don't go, you can't, she's not going to tell us, we already have an agreement, she's not going to tell you any stories about me, or we lose all credibility in this moment. Um, moving, but this is before Matt and Chris were even together, and then moving from there into the college ministry we were part of at the time. Matt was one of my college small group leaders, and so by God's grace, Matt persevered through that time and continued on in the faith, um, to which we all get to benefit uh, from today. But uh, this is a picture of my family, um, my wife and my daughter, and, and the, this other guy in the middle, um, but my beautiful wife, Caroline, my daughter, Shiloh. I, I brought some pictures with me just to kind of give you an update of what we're doing uh, with our church plant. Like I said, we, uh, we went there. We started a year ago. Some other family, families moved to be a part of it with us. And I, I just got five or six pictures here I think we could show. This was actually the first, the first gathering that we had in my living room. So if you're ever wondering, like, well, how do you start a church? Uh, well, one, I can't answer the question, but this is what the first week looks like. And, uh, and so here's a few families. We, this is kind of what small group looks like for us. I don't want to hear it. It's awesome. Um, it's already like 100 degrees in Charleston and, uh, and, and fabulous. This is also what some small group time looks like, some outreach. We cook out in the driveway. The neighbors come out. I feel like my neighborhood's half the church right now. When I'm not complaining. I feel like that's uh, really beautiful. Um, this is a picture of some of our ladies. Uh, our ladies are absolutely killing it. Um, just, just loving uh, other women that they meet, and they'll go to the park, and somebody will walk in, and 
And, the, and the, I'll be like, well, hey, how are you? I've never, you know, we've never met. And when you're a church plant and you got eight people and someone walks in and your church grows by 75%, right? And you, you want to know where these people came from. Like, were you in the, are you in the right? Are you looking for the pool? Because it's around the corner to the left. And, and, uh, but they're like, no, we met so-and-so at the dog park and, and so-and-so at the playground. They told us that you were starting a new church. And really, that's how it happened. And so many of these ladies are to, are, are, are to credit for that. Um, this, is, uh, this, is our, this is our kids. This is our kids' ministry right here. You got some big kids and you got some little kids. And, and, uh, but we're pouring into our kids. And then this is really kind of what... Um, it's starting to look like, um, which is uh, a blessing uh, of uh, just seeing it, being a part of it and praying for it and honestly weeping over it and seeing where God would take us and asking for his guidance. So um, uh, you guys, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for your prayers outward. If you, I don't know how much Matt talks about this, but, um, but your, your pastors and elders here are deeply committed to seeing new churches started. And I believe that they model that exceptionally well. And so you are part of a church that um, is about the kingdom. That's not just about um, getting bigger in Salem, Oregon, but seeing the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ expanded all over the place. And we get to be the recipients of so much of that vision and, and what God has put into the leaders of this church. And for that, uh, we are grateful. And I consider it an honor to get to come back and to, uh, and, and to share the word and some of our story um, with the people who, who are so uh, incredibly supportive to us. So thank you so much, and know that we're there, and we just we pray that you continue walking in that kingdom mindset as, as, as we progress. So, um, uh, so I want to get into, into the, the word. I feel like that would be appropriate uh, this morning. Uh, but let me just start <clears throat> with this very basic question. I feel like it's just kind of a, a classic question, and maybe a million stories are going to come to your mind uh, when you think of this, when you hear this. But have you ever wanted something so bad that you weren't going to stop going after it until you had it? Kind of just roll through the tapes, roll through the files. Have you ever wanted something? You were longing for something so bad, and it seemed so far-fetched. It seemed so ridiculous and unattainable, but you, you knew that it was going to be yours. It just some, somehow or another, even if it took a miracle, that you weren't going to stop going after it until you got it. So everybody got kind of a, a picture? Everybody got something in, in your head right now? Because here, here's mine. Um, and when I was in college... Um, not like maybe six months ago. I'm totally joking. I'm way older than that. Uh, when I was in college, every single Monday night, me and some other friends, maybe 15 to 20 of us, we would gather together um, at a friend's apartment, a nearby apartment close to the campus. I went to Moody Bible Institute. You couldn't watch TV. Like you couldn't even hardly take a breath without getting written up to get kicked out of that school. Um, but so we would have to kind of sneak off and we'd go into this high-rise apartment and we would, we would sit there and, and, uh, and we would watch as Jack Bauer would save the planet. Anybody? Anybody all eight seasons? And the miniseries? Nine times. Yeah. And this was our thing. And so we'd, and we'd be, I mean, it'd be, we'd be going late. We'd just be like one episode after the another, after another, after another. And like this was the early days of binge watching. Like me and my friends, we were the, some of the founding members of the concept of binge watching. And Jack Bauer was all to blame for it. Well, I would get there a little bit early because, uh, um, because there was a friend that I had there who I was starting to get to know more and more that semester. And, and certainly more and more through um, just through this, this common friend that we had in Jack. 
And, uh, and I would get there early, and I would, I would save the seat um, because she was going to be there too. And she, might I add, was absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And so uh, we, would, we would watch the show, and we'd watch another show, and we'd watch We'd get about six, seven, eight episodes in, and she was just like, I got to get going, guys. I got to do some homework. And I was just like, you know what? That's funny. I got a lot of homework to do too. I should probably get going too. You know what? Like maybe I'll just walk you to your dorm. Like this, you know what? This is so funny. We always have to leave here at the same time. What a coincidence. Do we even have some of the same classes? And it was super creepy, but it's, it just kind of seemed to work. She kept, I kept walking her to her dorm and worked out really well. And, uh, and so this went on for a while. We started hanging out with some, uh, uh, some mutual friends and um, all of those, uh, all of the while there was, there was a problem in that whole scenario. And that problem had a name, and the problem's name was Chris, all right? And Chris was a guy who was a few steps ahead of me. It turned out that Chris and said, gorgeous girl, they'd already been on a few, a few dates. That wasn't going to stop me. It didn't intimidate me whatsoever. And so uh, I just had to kind of come to a place to where I saw that I, saw that I, I was kind of making some, tr- getting some traction, and Chris was kind of going out on some dates, but she wasn't, she wasn't weirded out by me by all means. And so I just kind of went to Chris and said, man, we just kind of need to talk about this. And I'm not really sure what he was doing, so I just went and said, hey, Chris, uh, you know, are, you, are you going, you know, are you going uh, after her? Because if, if you aren't, then I have every intention of kind of moving you out of some really confusing role in my life and, and pursuing her myself. And if you are, if you are, just please understand that I will continue doing everything I can to remove you from the very confusing role in my life, and I will continue to pursue her with everything that is within me. Now, guys, I just absolutely, just hear me out. Like, there's, I've increased in wisdom since those years, so I do not recommend this for the single guys out there. You kind of need to start to know when your boundaries are. Like, if, when she's just putting hate mail in there, and your tires are getting slashed, and, and people around you are dropping like flies, you probably just need to back up a little bit and go, you know what, maybe there's more fish in the sea. But that didn't happen. And so about a week later, Chris's body showed up in a dumpster in Chicago. I don't even know how that happened. Some people were looking at me. I was like, I promise. I only had a little bit to do with it. But honestly, Chris didn't even stand a chance because I just uh, wasn't going to stop. I was determined to make it very clear to her who the obvious choice was. She was amazing. She was absolutely uh, incredible. And there was no way I was going to stop going after her, and so I didn't. And a long story short, not only did uh, I manage to uh, lock in a few dates, I managed to make her my wife, which is a very beautiful thing. And the beautiful, gorgeous, what's up? What's up? And the gorgeous woman next to me in that picture was the girl who we, um, we went and spent time with. Jack Bauer did our, our pre-engagement counseling our marital counseling, when we would have conflicts, and two years in, he was there for that as well, and so it was a beautiful thing. Uh, But in those moments, why not just stop? Why not just go, you know what, this just isn't going to work, this is getting tricky, complicated, I'm just going to take a few steps back. Why why not just acknowledge the uh, obstacles that were before me and just go ahead and let those go? Why be that guy? Why be that guy? We all know that guy who risks everything and it ends up being slightly obnoxious, right? But who risks 
everything to go after someone and something that he wanted so much. And I think oftentimes in life, uh, in relationships especially, in, uh, in family and work, and especially, especially in faith, we hit the difficult seasons and, and we find it hard, if not nearly impossible, to see through that difficulty to the other side. And in those times, after all the options are weighed and it seems that the easiest and safest route is to stop, what do we do? We just give up. We're just defeated. And we turn around and we go back to where we came from and we try to just figure out how to do something different. Oh, but it haunts us because, oh no, but I wanted it so bad, I almost, for a minute... I believed that it was mine. And I think uh, while, while stopping before things get hard is, is safe and easy to do, while, uh, while standing on the catches, while standing on the outskirts of the crowd is, uh, 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 is easier than pressing through the crowd, it often if not always, results in a loss of experiencing the beauty of what's on the other side of that crowd, and we miss it all together. I want to spend uh, a little bit of time in two narratives. I want to get into the story. Mark chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you, um, I'm kind of a translation mess, so I've got a little bit of this, a little bit of that, so just follow along on the, on the screen. Uh, but Mark uh, chapter 2, I'll start in verse 1. <clears throat> Uh, a few days later, and there's lots going on. Jesus is out begin as early on in Jesus' ministry. We see Mark usually he kind of skips a lot of the meat of what happens early on uh, in Jesus's in Jesus's time. But he comes in after Jesus is doing miracles. He's traveling around the northern part, the Sea of Galilee, where he lived for a while. It says a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. I love this. He's home. So we have reason to believe um, that Jesus probably spent about 12 to 18 months in Capernaum. So I think we just kind of got this nostalgic view of Jesus. Like he's just like the roaming miracle man, right? Like and, and like nobody really knows where he's going to pop up tomorrow and just like heal some people and, and do some crazy stuff. And, but no, Jesus, like he... He spent time with families. He had a home. I was just in Israel uh, maybe just a couple months ago, and, and, uh, and we get to go in Capernaum where in the excavations we see what we believe, and it's, a lot of it's speculation. We're not, we're not dying on this thing, but where we go, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense that that's probably where Jesus lived because it makes a lot of sense that that's where Peter lived, and we see a lot happening between Jesus and Peter. No evidence that Jesus built his own mansion in the, in the corner lot of the town. Right, And so to, to, to get this picture, well, Jesus, hey, everybody, Jesus is home. He was, he was out doing some stuff, and now he's here. He's home. And what do we see? Verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Get that picture. There's no room left. They're squeezing in this thing. You couldn't, even get, you couldn't even get near the property. You couldn't even peek in the door and see what was going on. You, you didn't stand a chance. So picture a crowd like that. What's a crowd like that that you've been in? What's a crowd like you've been on like a crowded subway in Beijing or something like that? Or you've just been to some crazy concert? I get a, I get a call from a buddy uh, a few weeks back, and he goes, Hey, man, uh, stadium seats or grass level? I was like, well, grass, grass level. 
I get done tonight. Like, what are we? And then he's like, great. And then 10 minutes later, I was like, what were you talking about? Let's just make sure we're on the same page here. He goes, real quick, is this a judgment-free zone? Is this in a safe place for me? Are we good? So what I'm about to say, like, we'll still continue to preach the word of God and we'll be okay? He bought me tickets to a Metallica concert. Hey, that actually went really well. It went better than I thought it was going to. So I had two bands for me that growing up for me, just in, in, in working through stuff, like BC, okay? Let's just go ahead and say that. And um, for me, we're, we're really, just I, love, I absolutely loved them. One was Foo Fighters and the other one was Metallica. And uh, I had a student uh, when I was a youth pastor, and he, and, and he, was, he was kind of into metal at the time, and, and uh, neither of us are today whatsoever anymore, but he, we made a deal back in the day. I said, bucket list, two shows, Foo Fighters and Metallica, you and I are going. And now he listens to like classical something or rather, and he calls me and says, oh, I got us Metallica tickets. So I was like, you're still okay. You're still okay. And, <clears throat> and we did the Foo Fighters concert. We went to see the Foo Fighters at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Go ahead, get the jealousy out now. Right? Yep. And then we're going to see uh, Metallica in July uh, in Atlanta. And so what I had to do as I'm picturing, and I'm thinking, oh, no, like I just said yes to grass seats. Like I'm, I'm getting up there in years. Like I need nosebleed section. Like I just want to watch the damage occur. I don't want to be a damaged goods myself. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like, can you change, kid, bro? You got to change the tickets, man. I got a bad shoulder. <laughs> I got two discs that are running the other direction in my back. Like I don't got time for this. Right? Insurance is, is slim for church planners right now. And, uh, and he's like, no, man, I already got the tickets. And, and, uh, and they were outrageous. And so I was just like, thanks, man. And, um, and so what do I do? I get on YouTube. I'm like, what's a Metallica grass front of the stage crowd going to look like? I mean, what am I, what am I really need to be preparing for here? I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. The crowd is so dense, it looks like water. Like I'm on a ship, and it just kind of looks like water. And every once in a while, like the crowd is so tight, like it's so, so snug, that just people just kind of pop out the top, and they start like flying on top of the crowd. They call it crowd surfing, I think. I would never do such a thing. I just think it's a terrible idea. But that's how just... That's just how wedged in there they are and how, how tight this crowd is. So, so picture this. You can't get another person into the house. You can't get another person around the front of this thing to see what's going on on the other side of the crowd. What was drawing the crowd? What was the focus of the crowd? Let's keep going. Verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get to him, they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So, so these guys, they carried their paralyzed friend on a mat. They make their way to the house where Jesus was teaching about the kingdom. Find there's absolutely no way to get him inside the building. Like, we just picture this. Like, go back a few years. Like, if you've got a church background, like, you've heard this story a dozen times, right? Like, you had the flannel graphs. They would, like, move the little flannel, and, like, they put the ladder up inside the house, and, like, like the boys and Ricky go up to the top of the house, and, and they're going to start digging a hole. And, like, we don't really get the weight of this. They can't get to it. 
So they go around the side, right? And they find a ladder that's propped up on the side of the house. And they've got these flat roofs. Now these roofs, they're about two feet thick. All right? They're two feet thick. And they start, and you've got some big branches that are going across this way. And then you've got some little branches going across this way. And then you've got a bunch of twigs going across this way. And it just kind of gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And then, they, and then they put a whole layer of just this hardened, hard-packed, sun-dried mud over the top of that stuff. So that, so that it keeps it dry. Well, so, they, so Ricky and the boys go up top, right? They carry him up like you grab his feet, like he ain't moving, right? And so they drag him up top, and, and then Jesus is inside, and he's, and he's teaching on the kingdom, who, maybe some other things, and it's a dense crowd, and they're going, we got to get him in there. We got to get him in there. And so what do they do? They start tearing up the roof. Like, pick, you're sitting in a small group. Matt's just getting after it, right? And you can't even squeeze another person in the living room, right? And all of a sudden, like, you just see these, you look through the window, and, and you could have swore you just saw some dudes just going by the front yard with a ladder. And then you just hear this, like, clink, you know? And then all of a sudden it gets, sounds like a, it's a, someone all of a sudden is just, like, throwing a fiesta on the ceiling. And next thing you hear is the sound of a chainsaw. Just, man, just going right through. And, you're just, and Matt's just going, like, you know, these guys are serious. Like, you, you, like, picture this. They're cutting a hole in the roof so that they can go to the meeting. Like, do you feel that? Like, it wasn't just like, knock, knock, hey, Jesus, you got a second? Yo, yo Ricky can't, Ricky hadn't been moving for a while. <clears throat> Crowd didn't stop him. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And after Jesus said that, there was, there was, pro <laughs> there was probably a little bit of an awkward silence amongst the crowd, right? Like all this, it comes in, like Jesus is going to do some trickery, right? And Son, your sins are forgiven. All of that effort to bring the man before Jesus, and they're probably going, he's, did we, did he just say that? Ricky and the boys, they're probably like, we just came all the way, like we just tore a hole through what was likely Peter's mom's house, right? And you, forgiveness of sins wasn't exactly what we'd hoped for, but hey, maybe, maybe he's got another trick up his sleeve, you know, he, he, you know he's, 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 he's pretty cool. And clearly his friends uh, <clears throat> were starting to wonder why this happened, why these words. And finally, uh, uh, the Pharisees chime in. We kind of get this picture of these, these legalists. Let me just go ahead and call them that. The, these legalists, these religious leaders who were all about the, um, the, the fundamentals of the faith and drilling them in and creating rule books whereby... Um, they would create a, a, a success of faith. And so we see them everywhere, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and, and, and they started to react to this and started to question Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. Well, of course, Jesus made a claim that would change the world. Son, 
Your sins are forgiven. And we go, well, that's kind of Jesus' role in the Bible. You know, that's kind of his MO. He's going to drop lines like that. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they're going like, no, whoa, t- time out. Like, that's something that only God could do. And then we get in verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, How cool is that? That discernment, that wisdom, that understanding, that presence. And Jesus, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. I'm going to venture to say he didn't go out the roof. Well, what do we see happens with the crowd? So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. How often, how often is that our response when we're amazed by God? That glorification of God immediately follows the amazement of God. We go, well, that was, that was cool. Like, that was, that was, that was amazing. I was just hearing some stories last night of God healing people through their faith, literally healing people in Peru through their faith. And in that moment, I'm not just going, whoa. You don't hear that on the news every day. There's a part of me that just is about to just burst into tears and go, oh my, oh my, oh my God. In a way that would just bring outright uttermost glory to his name through my amazement and the recognition of what has been done through him. There's a massive difference between knowing about Jesus and having faith to act in a movement towards him. Did you catch that? Let me say that one more time. There is a massive difference between knowing about Jesus. See, this is where I'm, where I'm at in the South right now. Everybody knows about Jesus. The pagans know all about Jesus. And, and, and some of them, they're crafty enough, they know more about Jesus than the church folk do. See, at least here we're honest. My experience uh, in our culture here is that um, if, we, if we don't know Jesus, if we don't love Jesus, you're going to hear all about it because I don't even really care what you think. Like, look, look, listen, like, I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even in that. Like, I'm not even going to have anything to do with that. Go, go and shut it and take it somewhere else. But where I live now, like, every, oh, bless your heart. That's, that's what I get. Oh, bless your heart. Oh, geez, yes, yes, glorify the name. And I got a neighbor, you know, my neighbor goes here, this neighbor goes here. And I'm like, these cars never even leave the driveway on Sundays. And we just sweep, we just sweep it all under the, there's a massive difference between knowing knowledge of Jesus and believing in faith that would cause us to act in a movement towards him. 
These men didn't just listen to what was said about faith or observe faith in everyone else and kind of stand back and take shots at it, make comments, like grab the cute little stories, hold on to them, retell them to all their friends because that's what they did over there. Their faith in Jesus led them through the crowd to experience what was on the other side. Many of us, we watch and we listen and we observe the faith of many others who will go ahead and they'll take the risks and they'll make their way through the crowds and with great hope and believing in faith that when they, you know, when they get past the masses to the other side, there will be freedom. And what do we do? We, we tell their stories. We read their books. They've been dead in holes for 100 years. And we'd rather just find a little bit of faith and freedom living off of what they've done and the risks that they've taken and the faith that they've displayed And so we'll rather stay stuck in fear and isolation and loneliness. There's a progression there that doesn't just take place in this conversation. It takes place in so many things. We become afraid. We become crippled because we don't believe that Jesus gives us a reason not to fear. And what does that fear create in us? This, this, this longing to control our surroundings, the fear of the unknown, this anxiety. We've talked about that before in my last time here. Uh, and then what do we start doing? We control. We start to lose control. So we fear more. We become more anxious. We do this. Nobody wants to be around us. So we isolate. Well, nobody gets it. And it's really hard for me to control all the other people in my life. So I'm just going to isolate. And I'm just going to have my own little party over here. And what does that create? It creates a great deal of loneliness. Loneliness on the opposite end of fellowship, which God himself has created and ordained so that it would come and it would bring forth the fellowship of joy we see in 1 John 1. And from that place, we live life believing the lie that says, it's better to be lonely and controlling and to isolate and to live in fear than it is to walk with Jesus to be known and therefore be free. Oh, they're all in there. They're all in there already. I, they're, I can't get in there. They're all in the way. Like, just say, hey, somebody tell me how, somebody tell me what Jesus did. And I'll live. I'll just, man, I'll get really excited about that story. There's no way I'm going to make it in there. Luke chapter 8. Uh, verse 42, Luke chapter 8, verse 42. Uh, one more story. Is it okay if I, gi I give us one more picture of, of what happens when we press through the crowd to the other side? Okay. <clears throat> uh, Luke 8, uh, halfway through verse 42. Um, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Your translation might be a little bit different than mine. That's okay. Let's just keep going. Um, but as he was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Like, we don't need to elaborate on that, do we? Like, that's pretty clear. Like, but picture that in your head. It's not, uh, we go like, well, what a cool metaphor. Like, there was some people on the street. It wasn't just a crowd, but the crowd almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Verse 45, who touched me? Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, uh, Master, the, 
the people are crowding and pressing against you. And I, you can just picture Peter like, man, you know, it's all, it's going to be okay. Like, look around, Jesus. There's a lot of people here. Like, of course somebody touched you, <laughs> you know. And, but Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. He didn't say, who, who touched me? And I got a bruise on my calf. He said, no, no, who touched me? I sense that power has gone out from me. And so the touch he asks about, isn't, it isn't just a physical touch, but it's a, a touch that in great faith acted. Jesus experienced the faith of a woman who pressed through the crowd so that she could experience the power of Jesus. And he felt it, and he gave it to her. And he said, who was it? In verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed. So you get this picture, like she was just like, <laughs> okay. But seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she came trembling and fell at his feet. And it wasn't just like, all right, I did it. It's not like, hey, who stole the candy? Which one? Like nobody gets to go play outside until we fess up to who stole the candy. It wasn't just like, okay, fine, it was me. Amazed, she glorified. Amazed, she fell at his feet and worshiped him. Could there be a better posture in our amazement with God? Came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And when Mark talks about this same story, he says, Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. here's a woman who's an outcast in every regard. And some people today would go, well, that's kind of harsh. Like, she couldn't help it. And like, but, to, uh, but to bleed uncontrollably for a woman in that day without a cure, uh, it, it actually made her what, what, the, what the Pharisees and what the legalists and kind of what some people were holding on to the good old days would say, that it, it would make her ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. She was unclean, which then just, um, just by essence of that meant that anybody she came into contact with, she would infect them with uncleanliness. And so she was an outcast. She had to stay away from everybody because she was ceremonially unclean. She couldn't bathe in the ritual baths to, to, that were required before going into the temple. So, so having great faith, she couldn't even go into the temple to worship with everybody else. So now it makes sense why she wanted to remain anonymous and carried a great deal of fear and trembling when Jesus called her out. But she took the risk because she was desperate and had an ounce of hope left in her. And in great faith, she goes out into public where Jesus was. She forces her way through the crowd that was crushing him. And as Jesus passed by, she reached out her trembling hand and wrapped her fingers around his cloak. And in that moment, she experienced freedom. And Jesus said, daughter, this is because of your faith. Now, there's something about getting through the crowd. Sometimes 
Uh, we see where we want to be spiritually, but it, it seems like a never-ending fight to get there. It's not, it's not easy, and oftentimes uh, it doesn't come quick, but there's something to be said for persevering. There's something to be said for continuing on in the fight. I think the Bible says a few things about this. There's something to be said for pressing through the crowd by pressing through the obstacles that are in the way so that we can take one step closer, step after step, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and it will continue until the day we die. And so we go, well, why does the crowd have to be there today? Couldn't the crowd just go somewhere else? It was my day today. I needed a day. I just, I just didn't see that part where that was written into our story. But that, he would, but that he, he would look at us and we would look at the crowd and we would go, he's in there. He's in there. What I want and what I long for and what I'm desperate for and what I'm in believing in faith is there for me. It's on the other side of that crowd and I'm going to get it and I will tear this roof down if that's what it takes. And so why fight so hard for something that seems so hard to get? Because we believe. Because we believe by faith that there is something great. That there is something, let's call someone, worth living for on the other side. Some of you would say that the the crowd you are facing in life is impossible to get through. Um, that, the, that, this, that this hole that you've been trying to dig yourself out of doesn't seem to have a bottom to it. And you would go, well, you just don't understand like, what my crowd looks like. The crowd for me, like, it's debilitating. Like, I, can't even, I can't even get through the roof. Like, you just don't but so, okay, let's just get practical for a second. Let's start by calling it out. What is your crowd? Like, what's in the way? What's getting in the way? What's that barrier where you look at it and you go, oh, geez, fear, isolation, loneliness. That all of a sudden sounds a whole lot better than just kind of weeding my way through this crowd to get to something that's so magnificent and glorious. That would cause me great amazement and to fall on my knees. What just seems so crippling that I can't obtain that? And so I'd rather be over here locked up in bondage and, and carrying my baggage and, and resisting a freedom that's offered to me on the other side of the crowd that I won't just be like, look, get out of my way. Come on, get out of my way. Get out of my way. And maybe for some of us, it's, it's in, I mean, walk it down. I mean, gosh, it's, it's anything that you're, facing. Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's a marriage that's on the rocks. You wonder if it's going to make it another week or past tomorrow. Maybe you're doing cleanup from a divorce. Maybe you're trying to figure out how to get this parenting thing on lockdown. You feel like such a failure. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a dead-end job. Maybe it's the loss of something or somebody, a relationship, but maybe the loss of life. We, maybe it's finances, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's anger. All of those things are hard. Some of them I, I haven't walked through, so be, because of that, I don't, I don't claim to know what it's like. But, I, but look, like I'm, 
I'm, I'm planting a church right now, and the enemy wants to show me what all the crowds are, and he just lines them up in front of me right now, day by day by day, and if I go this way to try to, to, try to get to the beauty on what's on the other side, that maybe I'm having a difficulty seeing, the enemy just, he just lines one up right there for me, he lines one up right here, and he lines one up right here. Like right now I'm in my life, I got friends walking away from me because I'm the pastor of the church, and they don't see that going anywhere good. And so I'll shoot you straight. The the guy who moved there to plant a church with me, right now, today, this week, he's turning against me, and and he's refusing to continue to walk alongside me as we plant this church for the glory of God. And so I got to stand here and I got to go, well, hey, you know what, like big boy stuff, like you're going to be okay here and like you just keep going, you know, like you're going to have your critics, you're going to have people walk along and you're going to have people walk away and I'm going like, no, this was a brother to me. This is a brother to me. And his, and his dad has walked away from me and his dad was like a father figure to me, an incredible mentor in my life, highly influential in our church. And here's this crowd in front of me and I'm going like, I just want Jesus. Like, why are all these people in my way? Why are they in my way? Get out of my way. You know what else is in my way right now? I'll, I'll get real. Can we get real? Is this a vulnerable crowd? I was just told, my wife and I were just told four weeks ago that we have a 3% chance of getting pregnant again. And I, I sat there and I looked, I called the doctor an absolute idiot. I was like, Doc, yo, I got one. It worked once. He goes, well, how long did you try? And I tell him, and he goes, yeah, do the math, buddy. That's 3%, actually just a little bit shy. She's your 3% miracle. I'm talking to a doctor. He loves Jesus. And so what's this crowd? Like, what's, the, what's my desire? My wife says, we, we want to grow our family. We want to we have more children. We want to we be a home where kids get to grow up and see mommy love daddy and daddy love mommy because that's music to a child's ears. We want that. More of that. Well, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You feel that. You're staring at the same crowd I'm staring at. But let me make this really clear. See, the, see, the object that I'm pressing through the crowd for, it's not more children. The object on the other side of the crowd, the beauty on the other side of the crowd isn't a greater marriage. It isn't victory in parenting. It's not a better job or, or more security in finances. I get through the crowd so that I can have the money, I can have the job, I can have the family, I can have all these things dialed in for me. No, what's on the other side of the crowd is Jesus. All of those other things are the crowd. And we press through those things because nowhere in life were we ever promised a beautiful perfection of any of those things. We were promised beautiful perfection and he's standing on the other side of the crowd and his name is Jesus. And I walk with Jesus and I put my faith in Jesus and I press through the crowd to get Jesus. And then he looks at me and he says, man, your faith. (laughs) Oh, Aaron, your faith. Here's a daughter. Here's a family. Here's partners in ministry. Continue to be faithful. Fight through it all to stay with me. But what if in 
spite of that crowd, that impossibility in your life? What if, what if somewhere in this magnificent love story, God made a way for you and me to make it through that crowd so that we might know a freedom that is only found in Jesus? Jesus is the hero of the story. My marriage is not the hero of my story. My children are not the hero of my story. My wallet is not the hero of my story. My job is not the hero of my story. My ministry and the work that I would do for the kingdom, for God's glory, is not the hero of my story. Jesus is the hero of my story. Don't believe any t-shirt that would walk around on a millennial that would suggest otherwise. You are not the hero of your story. You didn't die for you. You didn't save you. You didn't, cannot, will not, couldn't dream to rescue you from your own pit of wretchedness. Jesus is the hero of the story. Every love story has a hero, and this love story is no different. He came to live the life that you and I could never live. He died a death that he went to a cross that I probably should have been hanging on first. He died the death that should have been mine to die. They buried him, but there was no place in a hole for a God who lives and a God who saves. So he came out of that grave. Amen? And because I don't worship a dead God, but because I worship a God who lives, I get to have hope. Hope. That hope allows me to believe in the impossible, and that belief is called faith. And when hope meets faith, there is no crowd too big, and there is no hole too deep. So look at me. Get up, he said to our friend Ricky. Get up. Take your mat. There's the door. Get up, church. Because Jesus is saving us. And when he walked out the door... The crowd got out of the way. It might be a little harder to get to him at first. But when our belief and our faith and the hope that causes us to have great affection for him and to, and to press through the crowd and to reach up and to wrap our fingers around his cloak, friends, may you feel a freedom that is called redemption that is only found in Jesus and watch when you hold on and his healing power goes through you, watch the crowd get out of your way because now you are his. Will you pray with me? Father, what a, what a beautiful story. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for just these pictures that not just made up by these writers, but these these men who, who watched you at work, who, who watched and went, oh my goodness, they're coming through the roof. Father, thank you that you looked up and, and you just, you watched as the dirt fell and a beam of light came shining in and they lowered him down and you saved him. Father, I thank you that as we find ourselves on the outside trying to uh, press through the crowd that you still make a way and you put a ladder on the side of the building and you even left a couple shovels on top for us. What a gift. What a beautiful gift of love and grace and mercy and kindness. I thank you that this story is good, right, true, and perfect and every single, every single word is in place and not a single thing is out of line. 
Father, we believe that you, you didn't stutter when you put the words on these pages. And because of that, we have hope because we see in here that Jesus lives. And Father, through you, living God, surrounding us by your spirit, may we know you. May you give us the endurance through your spirit to press, to push, to plow through so we could see you. And when we do, would the amazement that is you cause us to fall on our knees in adoration and glory of you. And so today, in this moment, in this church, would you hear these songs and these instruments and these voices and would they be in response to our amazement of you because you amaze us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.